0: Our scripture this morning uh, comes from Matthew six nine and James five thirteen through sixteen. Matthew six nine says, "Our Father in heaven." James five thirteen through sixteen, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Uh, my name is Chaz, and uh, before we start, uh, we're kicking off a, a new sermon series on prayer this morning. Uh, but for those of you who don't know, we—if um, you're not on our email blast—we had quite quite a lot to pray about, and we've got a lot to pray about in our church. But yesterday, uh, Robert Wright, uh, as you, a lot of you got the email, uh, as I talked to Ann this morning, Robert's one of our elders. He got sepsis, sepsis, excuse me, and. What the doctors did for him Friday night was a last-ditch effort. That's how serious this was. Um, and in fact, the nurse said to Ann just this morning, they, they gave him some sort of antibiotic kit. Uh, she's only seen it work twice in her life of working as a nurse, and Robert's one of them. So uh, he, he really was at death's door, and uh, we, we've witnessed a miracle. <laughs> um, the other thing that's really amazing, so we're, we're getting ready to start a series on prayer, and... You just heard the passage. That wasn't actually our original passage. On Tuesday morning, I just felt led. I don't normally do this. I'm Presbyterian, okay? So <laughs> I felt led to, to change the passage to James 5. What a gift that the Lord has really directed us. I've, I've been here for 15 and a half years, since the beginning, and I've never seen a period in church where there's just this many needs going on. So, there's a lot to pray about, and it's a perfect passage. So, why don't we pray before we talk about praying? Lord, um, I know not all our our prayer lives are, in fact, all of us in this room, we can all attest that it's not as vibrant and robust as as it can be, but you're kind and you're compassionate, and you teach us to pray, and you give us opportunities, certainly, to pray. And I do pray for our series on prayer that it would be transformative, that we would find ourselves experiencing the, the goal of prayer by going through this over the next several weeks and months, and that goal is to know you better, more intimately and more personally. So we just, we consecrate this morning before you, um, and I pray this, this passage in particular would bring great healing and encouragement to many. It's in your name. We pray amen. All right. Um, So in 2013, there was a film called Gravity. Some of you have seen it. Sandra Bullock was in it. Um, She played the role of Dr. Ryan Stone, who was an astronaut, and she was on her first um, mission, and it was failed. It was disaster struck. I think she walked on some sort of uh, spacewalk or uh, walk outside, and it destroyed the shuttle. But anyway, she's at the end of her life. There's no more ropes. Uh, She's going to die out there in space. It's cold. She can't reach anybody, and she's frantically frantically looking for anything on the radio, to anybody she can contact, and she starts to hear a voice of a man. And she starts conversing with this man, but he can't hear her because, come to realize, the voice in the end of the line is really just a radio station from Earth. But it's a really poignant scene because as she's sitting here hearing this man and she's at death's door, she starts asking him, even though he can't hear her, to pray for her. And she says this, she says, I have never really prayed before. No one ever taught me how to pray. She's not alone. You know, Jesus was done praying uh, one morning, and he was with the disciples. And one of the disciples came up to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And from there, Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, which might be probably the most known prayer of any faith system in the world. It's probably been more recited than any other prayer. And yet, for many who have recited it, they maybe don't know how to pray. And not only that, Jesus said this when he was teaching them the Sermon on the Mount. And prefaced by this, he said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And which, what that means is, is there's many of us who maybe don't need recited prayers. Who, who, who when they pray, you know, people like this, it, it's like their prayers could be published, you know. And, but yet maybe still have a very dry, shallow prayer life. I read tim keller's biography this summer and one of the things i was really struck by tim keller's an author and the late tim keller and pastor that i really have adored um, and and it follows his life and around in the late 80s this, this part of the book really caught my attention in the late 80s he went with his wife to new york city to plant redeemer presbyterian church and um and, you know tim had been a pastor for 10 years tons of experience had taught at a seminary uh, even worked with church planners and church planning movements within a denomination, and yet he was very reluctant to take the position. And the reason was because he said it wasn't because of the lack of experience or the you know intimidation of good New York City, the cost of living. It was because he realized his prayer life was not robust enough to take the job yet. And that he needed to work on that. We're starting a new series titled "Lord, Teach Us to Pray." And in that, we're going to be going through the Lord's Prayer, each little different part of it. Uh, this week, we're looking at James. And my hope and prayer for all of us is that it is very transformative. This week, we're looking at praying as a family. He, Lord, he says, our Father, we are, we are His children, and we pray as a family. So there's three things we're going to look at. The plurality of prayer, the vulnerability of prayer, and our praying savior. So the plurality, the vulnerability, and our praying savior. So, all right. So we're going to be in and out of different passages each week. Um, So I'm not going to do a whole lot of background. But the book of James is written by uh, Jesus' half-brother, James. And it was literally one of the first, it was one of the earliest letters written all in the New Testament. In fact, it was maybe just 16, 17 years after Jesus died and uh, rose. And one of the things that's very unique about it is it wasn't written to a particular church like the Apostle Paul's. Oftentimes, even Paul would write to a particular city with many churches in it. James is writing to a bunch of different churches just to be disseminated among a bunch. And part of that is because ultimately, whatever church you're in, many of them were facing the same thing, which was suffering. Suffering. If you put yourself in a community, there's going to be shared experiences wherever you live geographically. And, you know, a wise mother once said this, life is like a box of chocolates, You never know what you're going to get. But what James is saying in community, you get the whole box of chocolates. There's a lot always going on. Invariably, if you put yourself in the community, you're going to be surrounded by a variety of life circumstances. You'll notice in the passage, he says, Is anyone among you sick? But then he asks, Is anyone among you cheerful? Is anyone among you suffering? Now, there were many in the church who'd be listening to this, and they would say, when he said, are you suffering or any of you sick? They're hurting, and they're probably saying, muttering under their breath, yes. With great resignation, I'm, absolutely. Because, you know, that's how pain works. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, when we're suffering and when we're sick, what what immediately happens, it just, we acutely feel our need. It rouses, I mean, just literally stokes all of our senses, and we're fully dialed in. But notice as well, he's also saying, is anyone among you cheerful? And that's, that's not to be confused with, you know, we were here in Philippians all fall. And one of the things that Paul talked about in that letter is, you know, being joyful in the midst of hard and painful circumstances. But here, as point out, this is, this is talking about somebody going through a part of their lives where a warm summer breeze is just blowing. <laughs> the wind is at their backs. Their sail is set high. It feels like the endless summer. And that is when we are most apt, typically, to neglect prayer. When we don't feel our need, and we can fail to even express gratitude. What what James is teaching us, and what he's immediately telling us, is that in community, we're always going to be surrounded by both. There are plenty of people suffering, and there are people who just had babies. In our church right now, there are so many things to be cheerful about, so many things to celebrate, and so many things to weep about, all at the same time because we're getting the whole box of chocolates all at once every time. And if you are vulnerable enough, if you and I are vulnerable enough in life to really let people in, to really give ourselves to community, then we who might have a warm breeze at our backs right now, do you know what that does? It means that you can't do what we do with the new, you know, the evening news. You know, we click, oh, that's hard. I don't want to watch that. If you really put yourself in community, what that means is if things are really going really well for you right now, that means you can't close your eyes suffering even when things are going well. Even though we're really tempted. That's one of the things we're most tempted. When things are going really well, life feels really comfortable, we don't want to be pestered really, really hard things. But see when you're in community... You're going to be surrounded with suffering, even those things. And you, you can't close your heart to it. You can't just offer half-hearted prayers. Community forces that in that. And, and it also does something like this. If you are suffering right now, one of the temptations that happens when we suffer is we can start to isolate ourselves. When we suffer, it's tempting to sort of just close the world out and to start looking at the world and, and our hearts get a little bit bitter and we look at those people with those winds at their back and say, why in the world is everything so easy for them? And why is it so hard for me? But see, if you're in community and you are suffering and you are surrounded by people who have reasons to really joy, to rejoice, what is that doing for you? It's causing you, even when it's hard, to get out of yourself even in that moment and to really pray and to really celebrate the things that are going on. Because, see, when we suffer, it's tempting to pull and retreat, and then our prayers can be very clouded and, and by resentment and self-pity. But James is saying, if you really put, if you and I put ourselves in community and really dive in head 1st we're always going to be presented with all kinds of opportunities to pray. Always going to have that. And see, James is saying, he's really saying that it is next to impossible to truly have a vibrant and intimate prayer life unless you are fill, your life is filled with others and community. We might get into our prayer closet and have an intimate time with the Lord, but he, what he is saying is that in community, you're constantly going, it's like, it's like an exercise regime that uses every single muscle every time you exercise. Because nothing. there's always gonna be something to pray about. Now when we get into verse 13 and 14. You know, he's, he's definitely calling for individual prayer, but what he's talking about is, is a person who's sick, and then the context is this. He, this person has got somebody over in them to pray for them. Are you sick? Call the elders. Now, there's a lot of different landmines in this passage. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a passage that had more things that are debated uh, and have been for 2,000 years, so I want to just invite you to look at the resource talk if you want a more technical approach, but... One of the things that's really pointing out here is that this whole thing about oil. See, oil uh, was used as a medicine. The Good Samaritan used it to bandage some of the wounds. There's nothing more special about the elders. There's nothing more special about oil. But what is is somebody who's got community in their lives. And one of the things that's special about oil that you see throughout the Bible is oil was used to anoint people to serve. They were being set apart. They were being ordained to serve in some capacity. What he's saying in the context of community, this whole bit about oil right here, is that when somebody's sick, we really do set them apart. We set them apart for special care, and attention, and for love. Uh, some of you may uh, remember the name Gilda Radner. When I say the name Gilda Radner, does anybody remember that? That's younger than 40, probably not. Uh, But Gilda Radner, she was one of the original uh, cast members of Saturday Night Live. She died when she was 42 years old of ovarian cancer. And um, towards I mean, literally the sunset of her life, she had just a few weeks to live. She was invited to go to a birthday party of one of the original castmates and right there in New York City, and at this party, wasn't just the original castmates, it was like most of the people that had been on Saturday Night Live in the 70s and 80s. And then not only that, this is a true story, the cast of Monty Python was there. So just imagine being a fly on the wall at this party. And so she's there, Monty Python is there, I mean, Eddie Murphy, all these people are there from Saturday Night Live, Monty Python, but you know, it's about that point in time where it's time to leave and... She's like one of the first to leave, and she's trying to leave quietly. I mean, she's about to die. And Bill Murray sees this. And Bill Murray, in that way he does it, pointed her out in front of everybody. He said, no, what are you doing? You cannot leave. This is unacceptable. You haven't even said goodbye to everyone. We may never see you again. And then he picked her up on his shoulders and hoisted her and walked her through this entire party, and, and just in a way that only he and comedians can do, where that sort of intersect tender moments with gallows humor, I guess. I don't know. But he literally would hold her in front of people and say, Say goodbye to Gilda. She's dying. You won't ever see her again. Make it a good one, because this is your only shot. Come on now. Make it sappy. And he got so tired doing this, literally Dan Aykroyd had to like, take her for a moment to spell him. And he kept doing it. And he would take people back moments by moments. It was said that her face had melted with just tears and with, with, with just laughter. What was he doing? He's doing what James is saying to do, that we, as a church do for the sick, we hoist them up on the shoulders. And what, James, what Bill Murray was saying, you matter to us. We really care about you. We're really going to miss you. We, like, your life matters to us. And you know what else happened in that party? When people who are living a great life and they're young and they're in their 20s and they're on top of the world and they see Gilda Radner's frail body staring them in the face and they're having to say goodbye to her, do you know what that did? It reminded them of this, the sobriety of human life and the frailty and the weaknesses of our bodies. That's what James is saying, community does. For each one of us, if the wind is at our backs, like the people who saw Gilda Radner, when you look at someone who's suffering in your church, it's sobering. It's humbling. And when you are, things are going well in your life, when you are suffering, and then you're disciplining yourselves to give thanks for somebody who just had a baby or a job promotion, and you're celebrating There's great opportunities to really grow in those moments. James has no category for a church that is not praying like this. But the question is, is then why is it so neglected? There are many reasons why. I just want to keep it simple for us. And I think one of the things that really stands out about this passage is the vulnerability of prayer. Prayer is really vulnerable, and here's why. How many times you pray and there's that little voice inside that says, is this, does this even make a difference? Like, what if I do this and it's just unanswered? Like, what if I get an answer I didn't want? What if I don't have enough faith, you know? And again, there's a lot of different things here that have, some have used this verse right here, and it has like shipwrecked people's faith, literally. But one of the things this passage is bringing up, there was this issue in the first century where people believed that um, that literally there was a direct correlation between their suffering and their lack of faith. So people, it was a very toxic belief. They believed, you know, if you're suffering, it's something that you see this in the book of Job, Job's friends. They really believed that it's something you did. <laughs> you did this to yourself. And... If it's not gotten better, it's because you haven't had enough prayer and, and enough faith, and that's why God's not answering your prayers. In fact, you even see here, Jesus fully totally dispels this. Even his own disciples are seeing a man born blind, and they're saying, Oh, what, what happened? <laughs> what did they do to make this happen? What did they not do to make this happen? Why, why didn't they have enough faith? Who sin, this marriage, parent's or, or him? You know, and Jesus says that's not how it works. It was not this man's sin or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, James is bringing this all up here. It's completely irresponsible and unbiblical to draw some direct correlation, but it still doesn't take away the fact that prayer is very vulnerable. Because every time we really pray, there's always that question, what if? What if nothing happens? What if nothing changes? What if I keep praying And things just get worse. You know, four years ago, around this time, my closest friend Travis Johnson, who was a big part of this church, he battled stage four cancer for eight years, uh, went through countless rounds of chemo and treatments, diets. I mean, all kinds of things. And one of the things, in all the years that in Travis that we did together, and many of you here, is we'd get together. Uh, And pretty much not act like Presbyterians. We'd bang on drums. We'd lay oil on him and pray and beg for his healing. I mean, countless prayer times. There was one time I've literally prayed for Travis at his house, just me and him. And literally, I've never prayed like this. Like, I was covered in sweat when I was done. I was a little bit sore. I think he was because I was just laying hands on him so hard, just begging for his healing. And one of the things I really felt was how do I invite the church into this? Because I felt vulnerable. You know, how do I invite hundreds of people into praying for somebody if now what, if, what about their expectations and what they think might happen? And in fact, just two weeks before Travis died and four years ago, he sat right back there in that back row. And at the end of the service, m- most of the people stayed. And we laid hands on him, I and mean, he was weak and frail. And we prayed for healing, boldly, loudly. We, I mean, the room was full of people laying hands on him, praying. And I want to be clear about something. He was ready. He was prepared for death. He was no fool. He was a very intelligent doctor. He knew what was going on. And he was not scared to die. But he wasn't scared to be vulnerable either. To pray boldly for healing all the way to the end. He wasn't being a fatalist. He wasn't hedging his bets in prayer. He wasn't saying, you know, I I see the facts, but your will be done. I pray for healing, but your will be done. No. Travis had the courage to pray, Lord, I want to father my children. I want to be there for my wife. I'm begging for your healing, yet your will be done. And that is exactly how Jesus Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet your will be done. But he brought his request. That takes a lot of vulnerability and a lot of courage. When we pray like James is asking, and it's bold that we ask for prayer and for healing, we're we're to ask for it. And yet when we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying, yet your will be done, because it's in his name. We as a church held him up on our shoulders. And like Gilda Radner, he was gone two weeks later. But that's the risk we take. That's what James is saying, the risk we must take take. You know, Jesus Christ reveals something about the vulnerability of prayer. There's this amazing thing that happened with Jesus, was went to a place where people were blind and lame and paralyzed. They had been invalids their whole life, and they're there at a healing pull, a healing pull every day, believing that when the waters are stirred, if you got in on time, you'd get healed. And there's a man who, with tragedy and mockery, sat there at the edge of the pole for 38 years trying to get in for healing. And he's waiting, and he can never get in. And Jesus Christ, I want you to really pay attention to this. He comes up to a man who's been there for 38 years at a pole of healing, and the first question Jesus asks him is, do you want to be healed? You say, well, what kind of question is that? A lot of interpretations say, do you want to get well? Because, see, one of the things that can happen when we're suffering, maybe you're suffering something physical, maybe there's hurt, there's struggles in a relationship, there's maybe church hurt that you have, And one of the things that can happen, we can say and we can pray and ask others to pray for us and do all this and pray silently and do all these things. But you know what? One of the questions we all have to face is, do I actually want to be healed? Do I want to be transformed? Do I want to get better? Because when we suffer, one of the things that can happen is there are things that we can hold on to and say, this is my identity, my pain. And we can become sort of codependent on it. He's inviting us to have the courage to actually ask, even though we don't know how things may check out, which brings out a second thing that is very vulnerable about prayer. I hope you're paying attention, and you might want to buckle your seats for this one, because he he says here out of nowhere in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Wait, wait a second. Okay, I'll ask for prayer, but wait a second. Confess your sins to one another. What in the world is that here for? Now, he's not saying, okay, before you pray, everybody's got to, like, confess every known sin you've ever committed in your life. Otherwise, God won't hear your prayers. But one of the things he's doing is he's he's showing what happens when we actually ask people for prayer. If you and I ask people for prayer, one of the things that happens is now we're inviting them into that situation, aren't we? I was hearing a man named uh, Mike Kelsey preaches at McLean Baptist Church in Virginia. He gave a sermon just last month, really good, uh, in which he talked about. There was a man in his church who came for prayer uh, at a prayer meeting and for deliverance over alcoholism. And the church, I mean, hundreds of people laid hands on the man. And the man really, truly experienced a miracle. He was delivered right then and there. I mean, of course, he had to go to treatment and all these different things, but the man for a year was sober, and it was an incredible miracle. But as he tells the story, about a year later, another miracle occurred. The wife calls one night somebody in their small group and says, my husband's had a relapse. He's in the bar right now. And the miracle is, is the people who had been praying for his deliverance experienced that are also the same people still praying for him and are in his life, and they went to the bar picked him up, and took him home. Because in that, they're saying, when we pray for you, we're here for real change. We're here for you in the long haul for that. We're not gonna let you go in this. We're we're not just gonna pray. We're here with you all the way through this. Prayer is vulnerable. It is, prayer is vulnerable. Therefore, where do we get the confidence to actually do this when we don't know exactly how, what God's will always is. As we said earlier, these short verses contain literally some of the most confusing and debated verses that I have ever covered here. And again, here we are at the end of verse 16, presented again with an issue that some raise, that it's our own faith and our own righteousness that answers our prayers. The question is warranted, as we can see elsewhere in Scripture, that sometimes, you know, unconfessed sins can quench the spirit. But there's really no way to understand what this means here. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working without being direct. Prayer requires vulnerability. Prayer requires practice. We must set aside time to pray and time to pray with others. And that just takes discipline. But if we come to prayer on the basis That it's our effectiveness is tied only to our own personal righteousness. We will never have the boldness or the courage to really pray. We'll be timid. We'll be reluctant. Almost fatalistic when we pray. Our confidence in prayer and desire to continue to pray without ceasing our lives does not come from our righteousness. But from the righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth for our sins, and to live the life of holiness we cannot live. And if you are a Christian, you are never clothed in your own righteousness, but rather his. And it's on the basis of his righteousness that we pray boldly before the throne. Because when we pray, we pray in his name. As the Apostle John says elsewhere, if our hearts condemn us, then we know God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Jesus, being perfectly holy and righteous and without sin, spent countless hours in prayer, and he still got sick, and most of his life was marred by suffering. But in his most dire hour of life, who pleaded with the Father for his deliverance, and it was unanswered, he pled earnestly and fully entrusted himself to our Father for his perfect will to be accomplished. And it was. Jesus prayed for you and I to know him, to see him for who he is, and in that we see ourselves for who we really are, which is beloved children whose love has been lavished upon him through the work of his son. He knows us. He came to make him known for us to be known and to know him. That is the goal of prayer.